Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. Our text for this morning is the Gospel reading, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 9, the Transfiguration. The Feast of the Transfiguration is always celebrated in Lutheran churches on the last Sunday before Ash Wednesday and the start of Lent. So we jump forward from where we have been in the last three weeks in Mark chapter 1 to Mark chapter 9. And I suppose that's wise. We get to contemplate the glory that will be revealed to us and in us before we put on the long, sad faces expected of us in Lent. And the next week, it's back to Mark chapter 1. It says six days later, that is six days after Peter made the confession that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. Why three witnesses? Well, according to Jewish law, everything is established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus wants the extraordinary thing they're about to observe to be verifiable. Six days calls to mind a couple of parallels. You'll recall from Genesis that creation was accomplished in six days. In stating six days later, St. Mark wants you to understand that the old order of things, with all its sin, death, and decay brought on by the fall, is passing away. The valley of the shadow of death will be no more. Instead, in the new creation, Lives will be one continuous mountaintop experience, basking in the glory of the presence of the Lord. Also, six days reminds us of the events at Mount Sinai. Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. Exodus chapter 24. Now the new and greater Moses ascends the mountain, not to receive rules and regulations written on stones, but to reveal the glory he had with the Father before the world was. Indeed, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. You must understand this. As Moses is inferior to the Christ, so also the law is inferior to the gospel. So God brings in a new and better covenant and allows the old to fade away. This is proven by what we read in our epistle. Moses came down from the mountain with his face shining after receiving the law written on stone tablets. He covers his face with a veil so that the sons of Israel would not look intently on the end of what is fading away. By this example, God is teaching us that the old covenant of the law is passing away and a better covenant is coming. We are the recipients of a new and better covenant through the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Consider some contrasts. First, the law could not impart spiritual life, but the new covenant does. We were dead in trespasses and sins. 
but God made us alive together with Christ. The life is in the blood and through the blood of Christ, which we consume from this altar, you receive the medicine of immortality. Second, the law did not bring acquittal, but condemnation, because no one is able to keep it perfectly from birth until death, not only outwardly, but from the heart. Trying to be justified through the law would be like trying to run a race without legs. You can't even get off the starting line. But we have the victory through faith, for the just shall live by faith. Third, the law led to bondage, not to freedom. The same Peter who climbed the mount with Jesus described the law as a yoke which neither we nor our forefathers were able to bear. But in the new covenant, we are free from regulations having to do with holy days, foods, rules that say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Not that we want to practice lawlessness, but we have a new motivation. God's law is written on our hearts so that we desire to obey God out of love, not fear. Some people ask, if you're not in the law because it's been fulfilled by Christ, and if you believe in salvation by grace alone, does that mean Christians can live however they please? It's really a, a rhetorical question, a hypothetical. It's rhetorical and hypothetical because in your baptisms, you receive the spirit of the living God who now resides within you. You receive new attitudes, new affections, new desires. Paul asks, rhetorically, how can we who died to sin live it any longer? You don't want to go back to sin. And whenever you try, you feel horrible for grieving the Holy Spirit within you. So it's really not a serious question. The fourth contrast between the gospel and the law, the law only covered sins. It did not take them away. That's why the same sacrifices needed to be offered year after year. But by the one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, God has perfected forever those who are being made holy. Fifth, the new covenant involves a close, intimate relationship between God and his people. No longer do we need to be like the Israelites who cried out, Let God not speak to us, lest we die. We can come boldly to the throne of grace, through the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, in order to find grace and mercy to help in the time of need. And these benefits that I gave you are by no means an exhausted list. And he was transfigured before them. The Greek word is metamorpho, metamorpho. You can tell it's been a while since I took Greek. Metamorpho. He underwent metamorphosis before their very eyes. Only it was not like a caterpillar changing into a butterfly, in which case the insect is no longer a caterpillar, but only a butterfly. 
He retained his humanity. Only now his divine glory shines through his body, so that which was hidden before is now revealed. To the world in appearance, he was a poorly dressed, travel-soiled preacher, a peasant from Galilee, the son of a carpenter. And Isaiah says, it says, there was no form or comeliness that we should desire him. In his soul, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But now his divinity shines right through, just as a filament causes light to shine through the glass of a light bulb. Only it was much brighter. It was mega wattage. So bright that his garments became exceedingly white and radiant, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. This means that it is a brightness which is incomparable to anything we have on earth. The closest thing that we have to compare it with is probably a welding torch. If you stare at it and don't turn away from it, it will burn your retina. And he was brighter than even that. In Revelation, it says, his appearance is as the sun and its brightness. I don't know how the disciples could have looked at him. Perhaps the creator of the eye did a special miracle where the three were able to see him without going blind. You also will shine. And even now you are the light of the world in a metaphorical sense. You confess the truth which chases away the darkness and illuminates the dark places. Last Sunday, I met with a man down in Roner Park after the service at St. John Petaluma. He is dying with brain cancer. In the dimly lit room, he looked at me with his one good eye and tilted his head to the side of his one still functional ear and listened to me. And all I did was read the scriptures, focusing in on John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The eternal destiny of every soul hinges on how they answer this question. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And with tears streaming down his face, he said, yes, I believe, as the light of the gospel flooded his soul. And he said, I'm ready to go now. This is the privilege not only of pastors, but of all Christians. You, the light of the world, and sharing the good news whenever given opportunity. And someday you will literally be light, for we shall be like him, 1 John 3, 2. And you will shine like the stars of heaven, Daniel 12, 3. The disciples are blown away by this vision. We all know what it means to put one's foot in one's mouth, don't we? A classic one, and oft-repeated, is where you ask a woman with a protruding abdomen if she's pregnant, 
only she says she is not. Oops. There is no way out of that one. One time there were two ladies sitting next to each other in my office and I asked the first one, we'll call her Jane, if the other woman, we'll call her Betty, was her mother. And Jane said, no, that's my sister. Uh-oh. <laughs> you see, Betty had not aged so well. If I had thought it through, I never would have said that. There's actually a biological reason why we do this. If we are nervous or anxious in social situations, the part of our brains that analyzes stimuli, reasons out information, and controls speech basically shuts down. The fight-or-flight part of our brains takes over. And the last thing it is concerned about is proper speech, so it comes out as impulsive and stupid words. So let's not be too hard on Peter. They were all terrified, and Peter blurts out, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make for ourselves three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. There was a feast every fall in Israel called the Feast of Tabernacles, where basically the Israelites would hang out in a tent for a week. Peter is saying, I like it up here. Let's just rest and hang out for a while. Notice that Peter recognizes Moses and Elijah. How did he know who they were? They both lived centuries before Peter. No old photographs at that time. We don't know for sure how he recognized them, but this gives us hope that we will recognize our believing friends and relatives in heaven. Jesus taught, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In the future kingdom, these Old Testament saints will be known and recognizable. And we can expect other believers to be known and recognized as well. Not only that passage, but others strongly suggested. Regarding Christians who have died before the return of the Lord, St. Paul says to the Thessalonians, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. In the same chapter he says, we who are still alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Everything in the scriptures points to us retaining our identities in heaven. And it would make little sense for Paul to say, comfort each other with these words, if there is no hope of seeing those loved ones who have passed away. Then a cloud formed and overshadowed them, just like it did on Mount Sinai, when Moses went up with elders, with the elders to meet God. The cloud led Israel by day through the wilderness, 
So the cloud is a symbol of the presence of God. The Father then gives the same words given at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son. Only this time he adds, hear him. There must be no competing voices for your attention. If you are to enter into eternal life, you must listen to Jesus alone. So in the liturgy, setting one and two, in the Lutheran service book, we sing just before the gospel reading, the Alleluia and the verse. Alleluia, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Alleluia, Alleluia. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Moses and Elijah disappear, deferring to the one who is greater than they are. Only Jesus remains because he is the only necessary one. When you are troubled by your sins and wondering how God feels about you, turn to Jesus alone. Moses didn't die for you. Elijah didn't die for you. Synodical presidents, popes, they didn't die for you and can't help you. Look to Jesus alone. And they were coming down the mountain. Excuse me, as they were coming down the mountain. Time to get back to reality. Jesus must descend from this mountaintop experience back into the muck and mire of the sinful masses so that he might ascend again, this time up the hill to Jerusalem and up higher still on the tree of his cross to die for your sins so that you might share in the glory that those three privileged disciples witnessed. And he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They were not even to tell their fellow disciples I think it's, it might be because Jesus was concerned that, they, that telling them that it would cause envy in the others for not being as favored as the three. We know from elsewhere that they were a competitive bunch. Besides, the disciples at this point did not understand the meaning of his death and resurrection. His death would have been altogether meaningless and a crushing disappointment if the resurrection didn't occur. And the disciples didn't believe it until he rose on that Easter morning. The transfiguration gave them a glimpse, a hint, that glory would follow the suffering. And then, after the resurrection, they would be silent no longer. They would tell the story of the remarkable climb up to the top of the mountain and back down again. As you climb the step to this communion rail, remember his great love for you in shedding his blood and meditate on the glory which will soon be revealed in you at his appearing. And then as you descend back down, you are ready to engage others with the good news of his death, burial, resurrection, and transfiguration. Amen. Amen.